This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Churcheo. Dr. Churcheo is a hospitalist attending at Cooper University Hospital in Camden, New Jersey. She received her medical degree from Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and completed her residency in internal medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. At Cooper Medical School, she currently serves as an associate professor of medicine and is the course director for the Selectives in the Medical Humanities. Dr. Churcheo's uh, research interests cover a wide array of topics, including physician wellness, sustainability, and hospital medicine. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, John. So after looking through your, your various research publications and so forth, it's clear that uh, you value both the art and, and science of medicine. And uh, considering these two perspectives, I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts on a question I often ponder, and that is, uh, what is healing? Mm, that's a wonderful question. You know, I, I think uh, all of the diverse background that you referred to is partly why I got into internal medicine, because I, I don't have to be committed to just one disease process or one organ system. I can kind of, I can embrace everything. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the wonderful things about the, the humanities, too. But um, healing, that's that that's a, a, a big topic because you know, there's so many different types of healing I mean, you know, and, and so many different ways that people can hurt you know, emotionally, psychologically. And um, a lot of times in the, the medical field, we focus on the, the physical aspects of healing. And that's just a piece of it. That really is. Um, just the tip of the iceberg. I, I feel like so many times when I'm going in and I'm talking to patients about um, a surgery or, or talking to patients about, you know, like what medicine we're going to start them on to get them better. It, it might not be dealing with, with what's truly important to them. Um, because, you know, there, there's so much beyond that. So, so healing, when, when we talk about healing, um, to really do it justice, I think we we have to think about so many different aspects of, of a person's existence. Um, but yeah, what a wonderful question to start off with. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So just to, to springboard off that, you're saying, you know, some of the conversations you have with patients, do you feel like sometimes they, they kind of don't realize what, what matters to them and they, they kind of skip directly to that physical realm? Yes. Yeah. You know, it's um in some ways it's the easiest thing to talk about, isn't it? You know, it, it's, it, it's much easier to say, you know, I, I have some stomach pains than to say, you know, I, I'm upset that my husband just left me or, you know, I'm, I'm upset that my, my son is dropping out of school or, you know, there, there's so many things that are so much more painful um, to bring up. And so sometimes I think, you know, focusing on those, those aspects um, that are tangible and that we think can be readily fixed is, is easier for a lot of people and you know doctors included it's it's hard for us to sometimes unpack what's what's really bothering people um and and so sometimes I think we too fall into the trap um and and I do too I'm 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 saying you know that this we is a collective we um we fall into that the trap of thinking that we can make everything better if we just fix the heart or if we just fix that foot infection, then, you know, everything will be better. And, and I, I think if we really peel back the surface, we know that that's not true. 
Um, but it helps us get through the day sometimes. We said that uh, you're involved with physician wellness. And uh, to me, it is a, a great tragedy that those responsible for, for safeguarding our health are experiencing tremendous suffering physically, mentally, and, and spiritually. Um, how can we kind of build a, a healthcare system that use a, a physician not only as a, a healer, but also the healed? So, uh, you know, I, I think the COVID pandemic is really bringing this to the fore, but issues with resiliency and wellness, grit, burnout, you know, there, there's all different um, terms and different facets that have been, um, that have been addressed. It's kind of like, you know, touching different parts of the elephant. Um, but this has been brewing for, for decades, really, for, for years and years. Um, I think you know, the general public is now seeing more of it um, because COVID has really laid bare a lot of the um, inadequacies in our healthcare system and, and how a lot of it does fall on the physician. And you know the health system in general is predicated on physicians spending those extra one or two hours at night, you know, the pajama time, you know, charting or calling patients back or answering emails or you know doing that that lecture or that grant proposal or whatever it is. And there's there's a, a lot of work that physicians shoulder um, that that goes above and beyond their office hours. And you know, so many times people think that you know this is just like us being inefficient. And I think that's you know where some of that um, that self blame can kind of you know come in, into play. And and I think we all have to recognize that there's only so much that we can do and have some self-compassion. Um, but also we, we have to be aware that, you know, we can't do this on our own and in health systems that really embrace the synergy between the person and their work environment. Um, I think when, when you really get that alignment, you can have some very positive outcomes. So, you know, when you have, um, senior administration and frontline clinicians talking the same talk, um, you know, that, that's, that goes a long way. There's, you know, there's certainly, we, we can do um, mindfulness sessions and yoga sessions and, um, and, you know, and, and even, uh, you know, social outings and, and things like, like that, um, which are incredibly important. And, you know, all of these things should ideally be done together. Um, but they're only a piece of, of the puzzle. You know, I, I kind of see it as there's, there's the person that the personhood and, and their, their individual um, components that they come to work with, you know, their, their background, their training, their experiences. And then there's the work environment. Um, and so, in, and it really has to be a synergy between the, the two. Um, so, you know, if you have a work environment that where you have a lot of barriers and you know work is very hard and you need more um, ancillary support you're not going to have wellness you know um, if you don't have time to do what you need to do you're not going to have wellness no matter how many mindfulness sessions um, you're offered or um, you know how many yoga sessions you're able to participate in so I think you really really need to have that that healthy balance um, between health system and individual and I think the humanities is certainly uh, a piece of it on the individual side that can help to build an individual resilience and um, an individual's greater understanding of, of their role. The, uh, the, the term, I guess, that we, uh, that I think you're kind of alluding to that is, has sort of been like a catch-all is, is burnout. And 
the more I've kind of looked into it at first, I kind of just perceived it as sort of, like you said, like working like long hours and you have a lot of responsibilities and you can't just handle that. But um, some, I, I, I've over time, like found some more interesting perspectives on it and that uh, I was reading some lectures by like William Osler and he was talking about it's, it's not so much the overwork, but more just like the, the worry. <laughs> and maybe mm -hmm. that was his, his kind of viewpoint uh, many years ago. And then, you know, another term I hear come up is sort of depersonalization, like the inability for physicians to kind of make connections with, I guess, their colleagues and patients. Um, so in your eyes, like what is burnout and, and what are the factors that contribute to it? Right, right. So depersonalization is certainly a piece of it. There's also emotional exhaustion and, and cynicism, which, you know, we, um, we certainly can identify people who we see um, with all the symptoms of, of burnout. Um, that's, you know, kind of the classic definition and um, that Christina Maslach had, um, was keeping in the back of her mind when she created the, um, the initial Maslach burnout scale. There's certainly tons of iterations of burnout scales now. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do, I, I really see this, the, the ability to no longer deliver the type of care that you want to anymore, um, or that you used to be able to deliver. And, you know, and that can take a lot of different um, forms, you know, it, it could be not being able to um, have those emotional connections with patients and, and talk about their, their families, or, you know, it, it could be that you're, you're thinking about the next task, and, and you're, you're not able to really focus and with the patient that you're, you're talking with at the moment. Um, it could even just be, you know, like that, that cynicism of, you know, everything is bad in healthcare and everything's going to stay bad. And, you know, certainly there are things that need to be worked on, but there's a lot that we can also um, take ownership of ourselves and, and try to make things better. And so, you know, when you've lost the ability to see a way forward and you just, you know, shoulder, that, uh, that burden and really think that things are going to be the way it is now and, and it's not going to get better, that, that cynicism is so dangerous. And you know, sometimes I'll, I'll even see it in my, my residents or even students sometime. And when I see it in, in, um, in young physicians, it, it's so concerning because it's like, you still have your entire career left, you know, please don't get burnout now. Um, but, but yeah, burnout has been, um, an epidemic really, I think up to 55% in, in some of the studies and, and certainly more with some groups than others. And a lot of those front frontline clinicians are super vulnerable, primary care physicians. I mean, primary care has just been decimated. Um, and, and you know, internal medicine physicians um, of which I am one, um, really we're, we're a first line with the, the patients and so we, we don't have that, you know, extra um, barrier of being, you know, a consultant. We are responsible for a lot. And that level of, of responsibility and, and worry, as, as you as you note, uh, Sir William Osler had, had um, referred to it as, that really is a, a key concern um, and a key driver of burnout. Yeah, I've seen it certainly in my own life as somebody who's interested in entering the medical profession. Um, physicians just kind of point blank saying, you know, don't become a physician and because healthcare is just bad. <laughs> that Yeah. And yeah. And it's, and very, it's so sad. Um, how do you uh, kind of work with that cynicism um, with physicians to kind of help them, you know, see mm -hmm. some of the silver linings of their practice? 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I think um, one of the wonderful things about wellness and engagement is that there's so many different aspects to it. There's so many different facets. So there's usually some way that you can get people interested. You know, I mean, maybe they're maybe they're not or they, they don't think that they're going to be into the humanities and going to the gallery and looking at art or maybe they think that they wouldn't be interested in a mindful eating session. Um, but maybe we can get them interested in um, in a, a Zoom link that is uh, in a Zoom meeting that's going to be a social event with their peers where we're talking and sharing something. Or maybe it's going to be a lunchtime where we're talking about a prompt, something that that affects their practice and, and they can discuss and and um, and hash out ideas with their colleagues. But maybe it's also something that you know, they find something in healthcare that they want to fix, that um, that they want to own, and that can be very empowering. You know, I, I think a lot of the passivity that um, that we are certainly at risk of adopting can also drive burnout. Um, but if we take an active stance and say that we're going to grab this issue by the horns and and deal with it, even if it's not 100% fixed, at least then we feel like we have. Some, um, some control over the situation. It, it really it, it shifts that, that locus of control. And um, I think that is an incredibly important part of, of burnout. Um, getting now to the, the medical humanities, you've done uh, a lot of work, as I mentioned, you uh, are heavily involved uh, with the selectives, the humanity selectives program at Cooper. So uh, first, in your eyes, what, uh, what role should art literature, music, and so forth play in, in medical education and clinical practice as a whole? So, you know, there's, and there's obviously so much in the medical curriculum. Um, there is, and, you know, and every year it increases because the, the research is just exponential. So uh, there are certainly people who would question if there's a role for the humanities in an already overbooked medical curriculum. Um, and there are certainly those who would say that, you know, that time could be better spent doing um, another research project or better spent with another pharmacology lecture or more time in the anatomy lab. Um, and there will never be enough hours in, in the, the day to, to satisfy everyone. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I, I think that the humanities do have a place, otherwise I wouldn't be the course director for it, <laughs> but I, I think that it is crucial that it's inserted longitudinally, not just as a one and done, you know, you have a talk about um, literature and medicine, or you have a narrative medicine session, and you um, write a short, a short story, and then you walk away from it, it really has to be something that's integrated throughout the curriculum, because you want to be able to come back to those experiences, and reflect on it. And when you have those moments of cynicism, or you feel like you're getting burned out, you have something outside of medicine that you can tap into. Because if you're feeling, if you're feeling stressed, if you're that, that medical student who, who doesn't feel like they're empowered to help the patient that they saw in the, the clinic, cracking open the pharmacology book is probably not going to be what's, it's not gonna be the answer to your problem. But if you reflect on the 40,000 years of, of wisdom, of written wisdom from humanity, you may have a shot at getting an answer or at least getting some solace. 
And I, I think that's one of the, the key roles of the humanities, um, especially now in the, this time where, where you know, people are so stressed and, and so tired and people are, are leaving the field of medicine or, or questioning why they, they got in it. I think um, identifying our why through the humanities gives it an entirely different bent. So you know, if you read Chekhov, if you, um, if you sketch um, a person's hand, you know, there, there is something so powerful in that. And that experience not only deepens your, your own understanding of medicine, but, but it is in and of itself, I think, a wellness activity. I mean, it, it's incredibly peaceful and mindful to just spend some time with, with literature. Yeah, I can't, I like definitely applaud all your, your efforts for doing that. I come from a, a STEM background myself and you just sort of get in this almost mindset of, you know, right and wrong, binary, things kind of click into place or they don't. And uh, right. I think that can extend to medicine, right? Where you either make the correct diagnosis and have good patient outcomes or you don't, in which case uh, that can be, you know, probably, you know, devastating for, for a physician. And, and I guess when you look at it, you know, more through the lens of the humanities. Uh, I, I know a, kind of a, a word that, that can be applied is ambiguity, like the ability yes. to kind of discern and, and see a situation and not may, maybe see like, you know, only one way through it um, is something I, I think is so cool about what you're doing. Oh, um, John, you totally hit the nail on the head with ambiguity. So I'm so <laughs> glad you brought that up. So, so with a lot of our courses, we, um, we actually do psychometrics like, um, like for example, there's a tolerance for ambiguity scale and we, we administer it before and after some of our selectives in the humanities, particularly for that reason, because we want our physicians to be able to see the gray and not just the black and white because nothing in real life is going to be black and white. And if you think that there's going to be a right and wrong answer in the patient room, there's not, and and that can be very frustrating for for some people. So so that tolerance for ambiguity is is so important in all fields, really, but but particularly for us in medicine. A paper you authored titled uh, "Medical Students' Exposure to the Humanities Correlates with Positive Personal Qualities and Reduced Burnout." Um, it had a, a nice snippet that I want to read. It discussed uh, medicine's quote increasing skepticism of the humanities as being slippery, non-metric, hard to define, and essentially incompatible with an evidence-based approach. Um, so kind of what you were saying before, right? You have to fight these, these, these battles, uh, whether it's with regards to the medical curriculum or you know, practice in general. Um, so my question is like, how do you, you know, how do you celebrate the ambiguity, the mystery, the humanity of medicine in light of, of this skepticism? And, you know, I think once people actually dive in and do the work of it, they, they do see the benefits. Um, but if you, if you don't necessarily know what it's all about, and if you're, if you're a student and you're thinking about, you know, the, the test coming up in two weeks, and you're thinking, well, I could spend two hours doing, um, you know, a mindfulness course, or I could study, you're going to want to study. But I think you know when people are actually then in the moment and and they actually participate in these humanities courses, then that's when they they see just how valuable it is. Um, and you know I I think 
what I've talked to um, a lot of students about um, is that you know, some of the benefits we don't even see in a, a pre and post test kind of format. We see them when they're interacting with patients and then they reflect back to a conversation that they had about hospice and end of life care in one of their humanities courses, or they're, um, they're working with a, a patient with some physical diagnosis findings and, and they realize that they picked up on some of these clues because they took an art course where we were highlighting observational skills. And so, so I think a lot of the, the benefit of these humanities courses are going to be when people are, are practicing and when they're, they're in there and, and you know, seeing patients and talking to patients. Um, but I, I do think that it's one of those, um, like see one, do one, teach one. We, we can um, try to get people on board with participating in the humanities, but sometimes I think you just have to dive right in and, um, and find what works for you. And right now, at, um, at, at my medical school, we, we have about 22 different humanities courses. And, and so certainly, you know, they're not, all of them are going to be a fit for every single medical student, but you know, that's why we have to try to find people where they are. You know, what is it that's going to connect with that medical student? You know, maybe it's, it's a course in film that's going to bring them in. Maybe it's you know, discussions around bioethics that are going to bring them in but there's, there's something, there's usually something that students will get excited about that is, is not just um, infectious disease or, or physiology. There's going to be something else that um, will hook them in and, and then they, they can see where some of that benefit lies. One of those courses uh, that you mentioned that you teach, uh, as I understand, is called the Art of Observation. Uh, can you discuss how studying art can enhance a physician's ability to diagnose patients? Absolutely. So I, actually, I, I do that one with, um, with Monica Zimmerman. She's the Director of Education at PAFA, the Pennsylvania Academy for the Fine Arts. And, you know, for, for years, we've been going into the gallery. Um, with COVID, it's, there's, there have been some virtual sessions, but um, not quite the same thing. But, um, but we spend a lot of time deeply looking at, at paintings. And you know, we really unpack some of our biases because when we do some of these close looking exercises, we don't want um, the students telling us, you know, well, I see it, someone who is sad. It's like, no, you can't have any assumptions. You have to describe what sad looks like. So uh, I see a person who has slumped shoulders and the corner of their mouths are downturned and their their brows furrowed. Like you have to give the visual evidence. And when you do something like that, you see how our biases seep into everything that we do. And in medicine, where we have to make these very quick decisions and sometimes go off of very little information, our observational skills are key. So something like the art of observation not only helps us clinically, helps us with those observational skills, but also helps us see how our biases are impacting so much of what we do. Um, these heuristics that, that you know, we, we rely on a lot can, can also be to our detriment. Um, so, and you know, it's just, it's a wonderful experience too, because we're in the gallery, we're, we're not in the medical school, we're, we're in this, this quiet sanctuary. Um, and, and it, it really is a sanctuary. And you know, some people, some students have, have told me that they had never been to an art gallery before that. 
um, which is so sad, <laughs> but it, it's so important that they get exposed to that, even if it's during medical school. Um, I had some residents who um, had told me that after doing that, they, they took up art lessons. And so, you know, I think there, there's so many entree points with the, the humanities um, to help people through whatever they are going through at any point in their, their life. And I think if, if we can open up that door just a little to people during their medical training, um, then we've done a huge service to them. To kind of wrap up our discussion of, of, of humanities and tie in burnout, do you think you can give more of a historical perspective on and like kind of a 10,000 foot view here of, of sort of, you know, what has happened along the way such that humanities have kind of dropped out of medicine in many ways. And like, when I think back to like, we said the time of like Osler, it was, it was like, at least, at least from what I've gathered, it was, it was humanities was, was, was more like sort of, you know, valued, I guess. And it and was mm-hmm. sort of what Absolutely. changed with, with, like you said, like the exponential growth in research and science and so forth. Yeah. So, you know, as you were, were talking about, um, Sir Osler used to have a library in his in his house, and, and he would invite medical students over. I mean, at the time they, they were all men, so, so a bunch of guys would come over and they would read Shakespeare and, and they would they would review poetry and they would discuss and and it was really considered in, in his in his words, humanities and medicine were were twin berries on the same stem. So there there really was no differentiation. It was learning. It, it was all education. Um, and, you know, and since the, the Flexner report, which was critically important in, in establishing good quality medical education, um, there was a distinction between what was um, the science end of things, the, the STEM end of things, and what was everything else, the, the humanities, literature. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we really see this, this division between fields where there was no division previously. And, um, and that's, you know, continued up to relatively recently. And you know, now we're, we're starting to see the need to bring the humanities back in. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a little harder to, to reintegrate when things, a lot of, of um, even though, you know, there's a lot of innovations in medical education, um, there's still some, um, you know, very ingrained thoughts about what medical education should be for some people. And, and so, you know, we do have to work a little harder to overcome that. Um, I think it is getting easier now that we have more research to back up the um, role of the humanities. And, you know, I think it, it's going to even be more important in the, the future. I, um, I, I just um, wrote a, a paper on using the humanities to help teach diversity, equity, and inclusion issues again, because of, of a lot of that, that ability to tolerate ambiguity and, and to see um, beyond just what's right in front of you. Um, so I think there, there's so many ways that we can integrate the humanities going forward. And there, I'm hoping um, an even increasing interest in doing that in the future. Um, prior to uh, doing this podcast, uh, you indicated to me that you know, you've, you've now taken some of your, your time and shifted from from humanities to climate advocacy. Can you talk about uh, you know what that uh, why you decided or why you've decided to make that shift and and some of the things you're doing uh, in that space? So uh, you know, and we were talking about this um, when we were discussing burnout. You know, it, it, you can either 
um, be the passive recipient of change, or you can try to engage actively. And so even though it might seem like two totally different things, I think the humanities and the skills that you develop from um, being deeply enmeshed with, um, with the humanities actually help you with advocacy. And physicians being advocates are something that, again, you know, his, physicians historically were called to, were advocates for the poor. Um, that, that's a, a key role of, of physicians. And, you know, and, and to this day, you know, we, we care for everyone who comes through the door. So it's a very natural extension then to say, well, not only am I going to care for the patient directly in front of me, but I'm going to care for the patient who is not yet in front of me or the children of those patients or the children in the future. So I, I think that getting into advocacy for, for whatever people are passionate about can be very easily seen as an outgrowth of, of work in the humanities and, and that the skill sets that you can soak up um, from, from macerating, if you will, um, in the wisdom of the humanities. Um, and, and, you know, climate change is, um, as you said, it, it's my, my passion. Um, it's, it's certainly um, a very pressing issue. And, and it's something that I think doctors have a very powerful voice that, that we need to be able to share more with, with legislators, with our patients, um, with our medical students and our residents is that we can train them with the skills that they will need in a, a changing world. Um, so uh, yes, I, I think that physicians getting involved with advocacy is probably, it's always important, probably more important now than ever. Can you elaborate on some of the ways climate change is affecting our health? So it, it can affect so many different things. I mean, there's heat-related illness, you know, if you're looking at all of the, the different types of um, natural disasters, heat-related illness probably kills more people than um, tornadoes and floods and, and all different uh, types of natural disasters. There's the issues of air pollution, and there have been studies that, that suggest actually uh, 10, over 10 million, 10.2 million premature deaths are attributable to fossil fuel pollution, to the elevated particulate matter 2.5 um, to basically uh, carbon pollution. And that's across the world globally, but in, in the United States, that's still a substantial amount. And in my state, it's a substantial amount. Um, so, you know, these are, these are real numbers. These, these are real lives. And it's not just from, um, from pulmonary conditions. It's people have had um, higher rates of strokes higher rates of heart attacks, probably from the inflammation that's generated from the air pollution, from, from smog, from increased ozone, which is an airway um, irritant, and, and you know, all of this gets into our systems, and it can just wreak havoc through all of the inflammatory pathways and, and the, the biochemistry pathways that are so important to learn about. Once you learn about how inflammation happens, then it, you need to go out and go to the source of what's causing it. And um, so, uh, yeah, and, and certainly you know, we've seen changes in vector-borne illness. We've seen, you know, creep of, of Lyme disease, of, of other, of mosquitoes, other vectors causing, causing illness. Um, there was just a study I, I read a little while ago that even, um, even people with just mild cognitive impairment, their, their mental functioning is worse um, with just a couple degrees above normal. 
And so we can see so many different body systems being impaired. Yeah. Could you speak more to like you you were saying about, you know, the biochemical, uh, you know, origins of inflammation and and, and can, can you speak to how, you know, climate change really amplifies the inflammation in your body? Yes. So, so much of the pollutants um, in the air don't just stay in the air. You know, they're, they, they might be produced by um, heavy duty vehicles or by incinerators, but they don't just stay there. They get into our body and then they're, they're triggering asthma. I mean, we've seen it's particularly in, in urban areas because it's, it's definitely um, environmental justice communities that are more impacted. You know, we, we've seen very high rates uh, of asthma in some urban communities, one to one in three, maybe one in four children have asthma. And, you know, and, and all of these have trickle down effects. We talk about the social determinants of health. This is a huge piece of it. And, um, you know, just tying this back to the, the humanities, you know, the social determinants of health probably account for about 80% of patient outcomes. We only in medicine can really help about 20% of that. So, uh, you know, when we're thinking about the big picture, what we're learning in those um, biochemistry courses and, and pharmacology courses, that helps us with 20%. But we need help with the other 80%. And so, uh, so humanities addressing the social determinants of health are so important to help people with that 80%. Um, but, but going back to, you were saying, how else does um, inflammation affect all this? Well, you know, it causes strokes. When you have high degrees of, of inflammation, people can have cardiovascular disease. They can have heart attacks. They can have strokes. We've seen higher degrees of higher um, incidence of, of strokes during heat. Um, there's certainly, you know, as, as we were talking about, not just, not just the direct effects of um, climate change, but there, there's bigger effects like changes on, on nutritional value of food, changes in forced migration and civil conflict. Um, there's mental health impacts that we have to think about. You know, when, when people are, are living um, when it's very hot, when um, they don't have access to air conditioners, that, that affects people's mental health. When their community has been devastated by flooding or or hurricanes or other natural disasters, incredible mental health impacts. So, so as physicians, we need to be thinking about treating these again at the root cause and not just the aftermath. What are, what are some sustainability policies you would like to see in hospital settings and how do you think they can best be implemented, whether it be through the hospital administration, government uh, or, or otherwise? Yeah, there's so much that we as physicians can do because you know we have some degree of um, of control over our work environment. There's actually some some wonderful online resources that people can go to. There's Practice Green Health. Um, there's MyGreenDoctor.org um, that can help people to to get a boost in this. But you know, people, individual physicians and and clinicians can get involved in green teams. There are so many small initiatives that can then snowball. Um, like just to give an example, we started a laryngoscope recycling program in, in our, our OR. You know, people got really interested in this and then they wanted to know other ways that, that we can be green in the OR. And now we're taking blue wraps and we're sewing them into, um, into masks for, for the homeless, sleeping bags for the homeless. Um, and we're 
for expanding the laryngoscope recycling program to the ICU and to the ER. We're changing the kind of inhaled anesthetics that we're using. So we're not using those potent greenhouse gas anesthetics. We're using something that's a little bit more environmentally friendly, using IV anesthetics when we can. Um, you can do things throughout the, the institution, though. You can talk to people in the cafeteria and see, you know, is the produce locally sourced? Can you switch away from styrofoam and plastic straws to something that's going to be more sustainable? Um, and then, you know, and then you can go big, too. You can think about how can our, our healthcare systems decarbonize? And, you know, there, there's certainly grassroots efforts that are important in every healthcare organization because every place needs an advocate. They, they need someone to be the first one to bring it up. Um, the first one to, to have an idea to lead the charge. But, um, but, but then more people will, will get involved. And, and, and again, the, the great side benefit of this is that it reduces burnout too. So you help to green your environment. This is the space that you live and work in every day. And, um, and you also get the benefit of, of feeling in control of things and maybe being a little bit more resilient as a result. So you kind of just uh, tied in the two things I was going to ask you about now is, um, you know, we've talked, we've talked burnout, we've talked climate change. Um, so given your wide range of experiences, what do you see as the most pressing problem in healthcare? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, I, I would certainly love to say climate change, um, but I would probably say complacency. I think we always need to be pushing ourselves a little further. And you know, when we when we feel like there's nothing else that we can do, that's when we have to stand up and say that there is something else we can do and we have to try. Even if it feels hard, even if it feels uncomfortable, even if you know we get shot down a couple of times along the way, we have to brush ourselves up and get right back on the horse. Um, so I, I think it's um, it, it's a, a bit of an it's a big ask for everyone who's who's already stressed and tired from you know caring for patients throughout COVID, but I think it's one of the biggest things we'll have to do going forward. Is that complacency you're describing? Is that distinct from the cynicism we discussed earlier, or is that kind of fall in the same basket? It, it's different. Yeah, it, it's different. You know complacency is it's one of those kind of insidious things because you know you can kind of you know think things are hunky-dory and not be burnt out at all but just not want to push for a change you know you can just kind of you know sit back and uh just do business as usual but this is not a business as usual kind of world um so i i i think there's there's that that slight difference that that the cynicism is, you know, a little bit more of a negative twist to it, where, you know, things are are horrible and um, and they're never going to change. Complacency is is just, you know, you don't kind of want to get up there and make the change. Is is that complacency? I, I I guess I've encountered a lot of you know, medical students, residents, doctors who kind of seem to place like lifestyle as one of the most important factors or the most important factor? Do you think that plays into kind of people's view that they want the, the lifestyle, the kind of the stereotypical lifestyle of a physician that can, that is like kind of maybe driving some of that complacency? I don't know that that's a good question. Um, you know, I, 
I, I honestly don't know. I think sometimes when, when people say lifestyle, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, you know, sometimes lifestyle just means the ability to be autonomous and, and to, and to, to just do a, a certain kind of practice, you know, engage in a certain type of, of medicine where, you know, maybe they have flexible hours or, or, or maybe it, it means that they want to be able to do their, their own, um, their own type of, of procedures and, and or maybe they want to be able to have enough time to do research or, or to do advocacy work, but, you know, they still want to put in the time or, or maybe they, they really do want time to do something else, like go to the gallery, <laughs> who knows? Um, but you know, I, I think lifestyle means a lot of different things to different people. Um, but I, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much, uh, I, I'm not sure how much to unpack in that. Good question though. Uh, some of my, my peers in medical school uh, related to this lifestyle discussion have expressed uh, concern about balancing the rigors of medicine with starting a family. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, do you say you have six kids? Uh, six. <laughs> I do. So well, what advice do you have for, for young physicians and healthcare professionals who want to have families? Oh my goodness, do it. Babies are so wonderful. <laughs> they are the absolute most wonderful thing. And, you know, it, um, it is time consuming, but after you have the first one, it gets easier. So, you know, it's, I actually, I make the analogy to medical training in and of itself. So, you know, when you're a medical student and you see a resident, you think, you know, how in the world can I, you know, see 10 patients, you know, I can barely see three patients, but then somehow you become an intern and you're just able to do it. And that intern is looking up at the resident and saying the same thing. And the residents are going to be attending and saying, how in the world can this person go to meetings and see 15 patients and have family discussion, but you just do it. So it's kind of like training for a marathon. You know, <laughs> you have, you have one baby, you get the skills and then, you know, you, you just kind of, uh, that, that skill set builds. So it's, it's certainly doable and, um, and love doesn't, doesn't diminish. It just increases. And if anything, having, children have made me love my patients and have so much more compassion for my patients as well. Not that you should have kids just to better your medical practice, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a nice, um, nice little side product. It increases your compassion for everyone when you love little creatures that much. Helps with burnout, right? <laughs> oh my goodness. Absolutely. All right, time for a lightning round, a series of fast-paced questions to tell us more about you. Um, so to add to the long laundry list of things we've discussed today, you're also a professional piano player. So uh, <laughs> what is your uh, favorite piece of music to play? Uh, Chopin's Ballades. Um, I understand. So you, you spent a lot of career, your time uh, of your career in the you know greater Philadelphia area. So do you have a favorite uh, place to hang out or eat? Uh, around Philadelphia or Camden? Hmm. So my, my husband is Lebanese. So I would actually have to say probably Norma's. They make wonderful Lebanese food. I'll check it out. Uh, <laughs> what is your go-to uh, self-care technique? Uh, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love my sleep. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it's work hard and play hard, but my, my playing hard is sleeping. <laughs> so I like to cram a lot into my waking hours, 
but then I protect my time to sleep. Oh, wow. How many, how many hours do you go for each night? <laughs> oh, I still get seven hours. Wow. Like I said, don't, don't mess with my sleep. Okay. You're having a busy day. What's your, what's your go-to lunch on the fly? Sushi. Um, and lastly, what is, what is one of your guilty pleasures or vices? <laughs> coffee. Just I really love, I really love a good cup of coffee, like, like a fufu coffee with like, you know, a, a lot of like almond milk and like syrups and sweeteners and <laughs> it's almost not coffee anymore. You lo- do a little pumpkin spice this October? Oh yeah. Oh okay. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Dr. Elizabeth Chocheo, thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much, John. This has been wonderful. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.